life had a face I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Welcome to another sleazy installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 323, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and this is the triumphant return of one trashy summer. We're back in business. It feels so good. (laughs) Yeah, something that everyone was... (laughs) Eagerly anticipating. We had so many people asking us over the last two years. Not a single reach out. When are you bringing One Trashy Summer back? (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes you got to do the ones for us. Last year, we didn't do it. We did a listener request summer for June. And spoiler alert, if we're still doing this podcast next June, I think we will be doing something else during June as well. But Mm. For the time being, we've brought back One Trashy Summer. We're going to try to cram in six episodes into the month of June, which is crazy because it's only 30 days, but we're going to go nuts. And of course, the first movie that we have picked is sort of an interesting choice, not really what you would typically consider a trashy movie. I kept having deja vu watching it because I felt like we had already done it for the show. You let me borrow it not that long ago, and then I think we sort of just sat around talking about it? No, we watched it together. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, we watched okay. it at your house. Yeah. Yeah, so we've probably already done like a version <laughs> of this episode yeah. at one point. But as I was saying, not really the most stereotypical movie for us to pick. I don't know that a lot of people would really think of it as a trashy movie, but we're going to get into it. I think that at the very least, you could say that 
the hand that rocks the cradle is either the culmination of all lifetime movies yeah. or at least the inspiration for many 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 of them and right. it's the peak of the from hell subgenre yeah yeah but before we dive into the hand that rocks the cradle let's remind everyone to follow the show on twitter at greatest pod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on apple podcasts podbean or wherever you find us, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really like to see another run of those. So if you haven't done any yeah. reviews or ratings for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please jump in. It's been quiet. What gives? Find us on email, greatestpod at gmail.com. Greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your emails on the show. So please do not hesitate. Jump in questions comments concerns anything you want to ask or say we appreciate that email twitter that's where you can reach out for stickers listener requests any of those things feel free we'll fill you in with the deets if you're interested and find us on letterboxd zach1983 and matt crosby on there so let's dive in let's kick off one trashy summer for those of you new to the program it's sleazier material i guess little sexier, trashier, all kinds of different things. Although a big part of the yearly tradition has been to debunk the labels. Yeah, they get an unfair rep sometimes. Most of the time we walk away saying, eh, that really wasn't that trashy. And I don't really think The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is as well, although it is sort of a pulpy, salacious story. Do you think that people get done with these episodes and think to themselves, yeah, they're right, that was a sexier episode of the pod? (laughs) Yes, I do think that. (laughs) Some of the things that will come up this summer, though, we definitely are doing some movies that I think are straight-up trash. Oh, yeah. Unable to be redeemed. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike a lot of the other stuff we've done, including this movie, which I don't really feel like is that trashy. So We also will struggle to find clips sometimes. These are not going to be as mainstream. The download numbers are probably going to take a a little bit of a hit this month. We know that going in. We're fine with it. Yeah. (laughs) I think every time we've done one trashy summer, there's been a little bit of a a valley. I know by the end of it, it's like, why are we even doing this show anymore? And then we'll do some (laughs) mainstream title afterwards and it jumps back up. Yeah. Yeah. Although this was a pretty popular movie. Yeah. It came out in 1992. It was directed by Curtis Hansen. Who we've talked about several times. Yeah, we did L.A. Confidential earlier this year. As part of that, I did say we are doing The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, so you had fair warning that this was coming. (laughs) The film was written by Amanda Silver. It was actually her first script, and she's part of a husband and wife screenwriting and film production duo with Rick Jaffa, her husband. They've been doing films since this one, and they've worked on a lot of big stuff. All of the new Planet of the Apes stuff, they wrote the Jurassic World reboot or whatever you want to call that 2015 movie. And then they were announced to be the co-writers of all four of James Cameron's Avatar sequels, including The Way of the Water, which just came out. So these two are still very active and on the scene. I'd say probably getting paid pretty well, too. Yeah. The budget for The Hand That Rocks the Cradle was $11.9 million, and the box office was $140 million, making Holy this shit. a huge hit. Definitely. 
it's weird because I don't know that this movie really carries with it that much of a no. reputation. It's not always readily available everywhere. What I kept feeling like, and I actually mean this as a compliment, although it might not seem that way, it sort of feels like the Stephen King made-for-TV movies. Like, it has a little, a little bit of bit. that vibe. Yeah, I would say that the subject matter is very similar to many Lifetime movies. Yeah, so definitely. that's probably part of it. If you have not yet seen The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or you'd like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, right now you're looking at a streaming rental. Did not seem to oh, yeah. be free anywhere. That's what I had to do. I, of course, have the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. as I do many, many other Q Blu-rays. shock sound effect. So, of course, as is tradition with One Trashy Summer, I guess we should just start out with, is this movie trashy at all well you were making a case for no well it's your standard thriller a part of the from hell subgenre. it's definitely the inspiration for countless other lifetime movies and movies of this ilk there was definitely a period in the 90s where these thrillers were big business there were mm-hmm. a lot of them you don't really see them as much now because genres fall in and out of favor and this was a moment in time where a lot of people were into this type of movie and we're going to get back to that in a second but I see this movie as combining two things you have your traditional lifetime movie which you can read into that any way you want whether you're talking cheesy melodrama or you're straight up talking subject matter that would appeal towards women however you want to view that or us and then you add in something that was gaining popularity in the 80s and we've talked about before which is the yuppies in peril movies you sort of combine both of those things and you move it to suburbia totally the tranquil serene idyllic picket fence perfect yard not a lot of worries going on in this household lift up the rock yeah what's underneath and then you have this nanny from hell terror that can enter your home The Hand That Rocks the Cradle fits into a pretty unique world where it works as a thriller that is designed for both men and women. It really brings in women in a way that a lot of other movies of this ilk do not. Not only because the two main characters are women, but because of the subject matter and the invasion that you feel and that sort of personal disgust at this woman entering the home and then taking the place of the mother and the wife and sort of disrupting the sanctity of the household and the marriage and all these different things. It really is going to like get under the skin of women. Upsetting the uh, natural ecosystem. I think that makes it unique and it really doubles your perspective audience as to who is going to be interested in this. And that's probably a big reason why it was a huge hit. Probably unexpectedly too. I can't imagine everyone was... (laughs) thinking this was going to be a big deal. Hanson was like onto his next project, and he's like, what? If you are a historian of the show, Mm. you may recall a previous One Trashy Summer where we did Single White Female, Poison Ivy, and Basic Instinct. I believe it was our first One Trashy Summer. Well, all of those movies came out the same year as this one, 1992. Big year. People were just kind of like feeling some turmoil at home. Maybe I was building towards that. Maybe I knew all along. I think so. That 92 was a time where people had an appetite for this kind of material. Yeah, we do need like an archivist for the show. You have that great poster design where you have the picture of the happy family with the jagged 
<laughs> break, and then there's the I know evil woman inserting so herself like in, disrupting the family. Bright blue eyes. The hand that rocks the cradle originated as Silver's film school thesis. The title of the film is taken from the famous 1865 poem of the same name written by William Ross Wallace, which praises motherhood and Hmm. celebrates mothers and states that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Not sure I would have gotten that reference. There are also several nods to the comic opera The Pirates of Penzance from 1879 by Gilbert and Sullivan. Is that what they're like listening to in the living room at some point? They have references and homages and different shout-outs to the various songs. The main theme for the film, as heard in the main title cue, The Home, and several other cues thereafter, is actually an adaptation of the melody from the song Poor Wandering One, which was written for the comic opera The Pirates of Penzance by the Victorian-era composer-lyricist team William Gilbert and Arthur Sullivan in 1879. The story of the Pirates of Penzance begins when a hard-of-hearing nanny accidentally sends an orphaned baby boy to be trained as a pirate instead of a pilot, i.e. someone who steers boats. And This, of course, has parallels with the plot of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which involves a nanny and a baby boy, and a whole load of unsavory subsequent shenanigans. Definitely. The music of Gilbert and Sullivan appears embedded throughout the film. Peyton hums... The poor wandering one melody when strolling with the baby through the park. Michael hears a snippet of the song on the radio. The clock in the basement plays more music from the same operetta. And there are additional references to another Gilbert and Sullivan work, HMS Pinafore. Yeah, I never would have gotten that on my own. Yeah, I don't know that I would have either. I was a little bit confused by it at first, too. And that's why I wanted to research it more and figure out what the deal was with the Pirates of Penzance. I was like, "What, what is the connection? But I guess there's some similar stuff with the nanny. Part of these types of movies is establishing the dreamland, the picturesque, idyllic, suburban world, super comfortable, upper middle class, and then you have to shatter that illusion of safety, the illusion of normality, the illusion that nothing can touch us here. And that's essentially what the driving force of the film ends up being. You have the Bartels, Claire, Michael... Little Emma living in this world, and then a foreign entity is introduced. But the movie does such a hilarious, magnificent job of setting it up where this horrific event kicks off the movie. And the first time you watch it, if you have any familiarity with what this film might be, you're thinking, well, what the fuck is going on? What does yeah, this I know. have to do with anything? And then allowing the audience to know the whole time what's happening is a very specific choice totally but it leads to the audience being able to react even more over the top to some of these very things they know what's going on yeah and then the characters themselves are in the dark a lot of people yelling at the screen by the way emma played by madeline zima notably in twin peaks the return yeah that's true she's sort of turned into a a name actress. I, yeah. What was the show? She, well, was, on she was on Californication. That's yeah. what I first saw her. Well, the big thing that is an obstacle to overcome with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is Ernie Hudson as Solomon. Oh, yes. The intellectually disabled handyman from the Better Day program who ends up doing some odd jobs for the Bartels and really bonding with them a little bit at the outset and then becoming a fixture and 
it's a performance that is sure to make people a little uneasy for sure this day and age it's meant to be a good thing kind of well he has a heroic well presence in the movie there's sort of that well-meaning liberal shit that well makes yeah think of get out a little bit where true there's an added racial component to the whole thing where it seems like they're kind of like patting themselves on the back for being these for getting him a bike great people no yeah. that's fine that they okay. did that it's more like look how great we are great we are yeah yeah for letting this guy work for us even though it's like well what is the payment situation mm. going on i don't even know i thought you were just saying problematic because of the performance well yeah yeah but there's a whole added element right. with the racial stuff gotcha it's not really an offensive performance or anything but it's just something that doesn't exist now right it's funny though because saying that you're really only talking about the last few years i actually think this performance is pretty passable to the point of 2016 17 18 maybe within the last five or six years you're you're gonna start having the pushback where you can't do this anymore but i don't know we just act as if Oh, yeah, you could never do this now. But it's really recent that this has sure. become a thing. True. I don't really know what you do in these instances. Do you just cast somebody who is intellectually disabled? I think that's or? the preference. I guess, yeah. They have Solomon building a new fence. He's always hanging around, helping. As I said, he becomes a fixture at the Bartell house. So we're in Seattle. Housewife Claire Bartell, played by Annabella Ciora is happily married and pregnant with her second child. They seem like they live a fairly decent life. Money doesn't seem to be a concern here. At a routine checkup, she is sexually molested by her new obstetrician, Dr. Victor Mott, played by John Delancey. Absolutely shocking the first time we watched this. (laughs) I was not expecting this is where we were heading. It's a harrowing scene. It's it's all very overwhelming, especially for Claire, obviously. She's not only yeah. the victim in the situation, but she's a new patient because her regular doctor has retired. So this is the first time she's seeing this guy. He's preying on the ultimate vulnerability here where she's pregnant, so there's everything that comes along with that. Fear, uncertainty about the future. She wants to make sure that the baby's healthy, she's healthy. She has all of that going on. She has to strip down to a certain level of undress. And then in that position, this guy takes advantage of her, who she's supposed to be able to trust. I know that I'm basically just spelling sure. it out, but there's an added level to how horrible and sleazy Definitely. these things are when it's somebody that you're putting voluntarily all of that trust into. Mm-hmm. And you see the discomfort immediately. And I do think that, it's worth clarifying here that we're having fun doing this movie. It ends up being a lot of drama and fun, over-the-top, scenery-chewing moments with a great performance by Rebecca DeMornay. But I I want to stress that... <laughs> this part is pretty disturbing. This is not trashy. Yeah, yeah. What's happening to her. She's a victim. We're not trying to have fun with the right, salacious right. part of this her is... being molested. This is like a fucked up yeah. beginning to a movie that turns into a, a thriller. It's actually sort of shocking tonally that it goes this dark in the beginning. But I guess this is the story. This is how it kicks us off. But it doesn't really have that same level of darkness. Right. And you have to remember, they're not really following any pre-existing formula they're just telling this version of this story so they're not thinking oh this is way darker than your normal lifetime movie or something because 
they're not really comparing it to that. They're just sort of telling their story. And they go all out. And she's got asthma. She's freaking out. She basically has to run out of the office with the people in the waiting room confused and calling after her. But I did think it was like a very weird doctor's office because you just like go up that flight of steps. Uh huh. And then it's like all in the open there. They're all just out in that huge room. Yeah. If you know what I mean. I do. But they're just like upstairs. And then right. if you go down, you have like the huge building. But there's no... The stairs just lead up to like a waiting area. It's it's sort of a weird setup. It is. I don't know if it's supposed to be a hospital or maybe. Because it's a huge building. It's got to be. Yeah, it's big. Traumatized, Claire tells her husband, Michael, played by Matt McCoy, who we would know as Lloyd Braun from Seinfeld. He also right. had a small part in Hanson's other film that we recently talked about, L.A. Confidential. He encourages her to report Dr. Mott to the state medical board. I don't have a ton of fun facts or little info about all kinds of different stuff, but there's a little bit out there for this movie. Kevin Spacey auditioned for this part. Oh, wow. Which I guess is ironic because he ends up ends being, up being Confidential. a star in that movie a couple years later. Christopher McDonald turned it down. <laughs> wow. That would be funny if... Shooter McAvin was the husband in this I know. Movie. That actually, even though I feel like he's a bigger star, that seems like a downgrade for this role. He's a little too, I don't want to say this in an insulting way, but I, he's has a very cartoonish presence for me, whereas this guy seems a little bit more everyman. Yeah. I just think that with what we know of Christopher McDonald, that would potentially distract, but yeah. it's a sliding doors butterfly effect type thing because totally. if, if he was this part then his whole career would probably yeah, be yeah. different claire's accusation prompts four more women to come forward about dr mott assaulting them and multiple charges are prepared against him he ultimately commits suicide to avoid being arrested this all happens super quick. very quickly yeah yeah and i know what you're thinking one trashy summer party atmosphere. Where are the laughs? We're starting out a move. Our first sort of movie a, cr- a grim kickoff yeah. is a pregnant woman being molested, yeah, and then her attacker committing suicide. It's quite a way to it kick gets off fun, the guys. Just <laughs> hang out, stay with us. I'm not gonna promise anything. <laughs> I don't know that it's gonna be fun. That's true, <laughs> but yeah, this is all very rapid. You're mm-hmm. just in it immediately. You're going 100 and we're not miles an done hour. yet. I feel like everything that then happens with Peyton is still pretty dark. The next sequence is in the lawyer's office and then beyond. Yeah. As we mentioned, I think that certain movies, especially if you don't see them in the era when they come out, they have this reputation that you absorb through osmosis, cultural osmosis, references in TV shows, people talking about it, True. a, a joke in a column you read whatever so you come into these movies with expectations and re- everything and you feel like you know a movie so you're seeing the hand that rocks the cradle for the first time and you're maybe not sure where it's going but then when you have the scene of dr mott killing himself you're like oh hey there's photos of rebecca de Warnay on dr mott's desk mm-hmm. hmm. okay where is this heading it's all piecing yeah, yeah. together you're remembering the trailer you're remembering the reputation it adds a whole other element that you may not have even been aware of, that there's right. actually a personal connection. It's not just some crazy woman that's going to insert herself into the lives of these regular, ordinary people. It's someone with a grudge. It's someone who has a motive to do it, which is she justified is in this cool. grudge? Not really sure about that. No, yeah. <laughs> no it's crazy. Yeah. This woman uh-huh. 
Claire is a victim. Absolutely. Of her husband. Now, is Mrs. Mott a victim as well? Yes, but that doesn't excuse right. this behavior. You can't just do whatever you want. <laughs> I know. So I had never seen this movie until we watched it together, but it's definitely one of those titles that you're just aware of. I couldn't picture it. I had no idea what it looked like, what it was even about, but it's just one of those movies sort of like Single White Female that the title is a reference. Yeah, yeah. Anytime there's sort of a psychotic woman or an unhinged woman and it has something to do with a family, you can insert the jokes, whether you're talking about a sitcom or everyday life. But it is sort of reductive, though, because single white female is another example. These things tend to be about women when it's memorable. It can be inserted into pop culture. Okay. (laughs) I guess there's sort of a different connotation, though, because if you call somebody Hannibal Lecter or Jason Voorhees or something, I don't really think men take that personally because it's just sort of this over-the-top cartoonish joke but i do think that sometimes with single white female or the hand that rocks the cradle or basic instinct or any of these things with women or gone girl has kind of become like the new one. Oh yeah it's always a way to compartmentalize and reduce women to some sort of a generic mental illness type thing like a box to put them in but yeah that doesn't necessarily change the fact, though, that these are memorable and highly entertaining films. Totally. Now, I look at something like this and think that the female characters are actually interesting, whereas, like, the male characters are either evil or duds. Lawyers t- tell Maud's pregnant widow, who's played by Rebecca De Mornay, that her husband's assets have been frozen due to potential forthcoming lawsuits. Now, that part would be a huge bummer. <laughs> Not just that your husband is dead and committed suicide, and you're like, wait, I also don't have access to all his money? <laughs> and he's a disgrace. Yeah. They also reveal that his suicide has voided his life insurance contract, and she is going to lose her luxurious home. Oof. Which we should point out is an unbelievable house. Totally. This house is crazy. A lot of cool architecture in the Pacific Northwest. This was a real house, and I think, oddly enough, when they have those real estate documents out i think it's like the real address oh wow (laughs) a famous seattle house much like the one in fear (laughs) other than it's in seattle i don't really know that there's really anything similar about it this house i've never seen anything like this house Mm -hmm. he must be making really good money i think so (laughs) because that house is i don't know it's a special house i don't know how to explain it the extreme stress dumped upon her causes Mrs. Mott to go into preterm labor and lose her baby, undergoing an emergency hysterectomy, which means that she will not be able to have children in the future. While in the hospital recovering, too depressed to eat or speak, she sees a news story which identifies Claire as the first woman who came forward with allegations against her husband. Hmm. And now we got a movie, folks. Mott's wife is a victim too we should keep that in mind i think the backstory and the added element of actually having the visuals allows the viewer to empathize with both women at least at first until mott's wife cashes in all of the goodwill we could give her takes it a little too far rebecca de mornay initially auditioned for the role of claire bartell and annabelle Ciora auditioned for the role of mrs mott i think they ended up in the right positions for this as well. Sybil Shepard turned down the role of Mrs. Mott. Mm, I would have been interested in that, though. 
It, it, no, it wouldn't have been that good. <laughs> Rebecca De Mornay had been angling for the part of Tinkerbell in Hook. Losing the role to Julia Roberts prompted her to seek something a little darker. Ironically, Roberts was nicknamed Tinker Hell by the crew <laughs> while filming Hook because she was so difficult to work with. You love those creative nicknames. It all worked out, though. I think De Mornay is fantastic in this film. I love Sybil Shepard. She would have been terrible. I don't, yeah, that I don't is hard to picture. Do the evil. I like Sybil Shepard. I think she's a little bit limited. I don't know yeah. that she would have pulled it off. There's something De Mornay is doing in this movie that seemingly exceeds her abilities that she puts on display in most of her other work. Not that she's ever bad. I, I like De Mornay. Oh, she's yeah. in a lot of weird 90s thrillers that are kind of under the radar that are fun to watch. But I think she's great in this movie. I think she's Oscar nomination worthy. She wasn't nominated, but I buy it fully. I think she comes off completely insane. <laughs> right. Part of it is how bright her blue eyes are with the blonde hair. That and is everything. creepy. She looks kind of like a doll or something. Uh, a white walker. <laughs> she just has like a great vibe and presence. I think she pulls off everything she needs to in this movie. She's sexy when she needs to be. She's creepy, but she does the normal and the psychotic both really well. Absolutely. I'm a little disappointed that it didn't really end up being a huge star-making performance. It's not like the rest of the 90s she was on top of the world or anything, but I don't know. It's really good. I think it's reason enough to go back and check out this movie. We jump ahead six months later. Life has moved on. Claire has given birth to a baby boy named Joey. Solomon has continued doing odd jobs for the Bartels. As I said, I was a little yeah. concerned about the payment. Are they paying these guys less than I was what like, they would have to pay regular workers? Like a contractor, yeah. I don't know. I don't. Uh, it does seem like it's weird that this business model would stay in place this long. What do you mean? Like it just seems like if there's something like this, a guy comes in and he does build a fence, and that's it. Not that he's continuing to do work on your house. Well, I think the idea is that they like him, yeah. And so they've just told them. We'd like to have Solomon keep working for us, and considering like how little money is involved, it's probably sure. pretty easy to make that happen. Yeah, because Emma has grown very fond of him. I don't know. It does sort of feel like they're taking advantage of the situation. I'm yeah. not really sure. <laughs> Something unethical is happening. However, while the nasty business with Doctor Mott may be fading into the background for this family, the wound is still fresh for the man's widow the woman who had her entire life and future cruelly ripped from her hands. Calling herself Peyton Flanders, uh-huh. Mrs. Terrible name. Mott shows up in Claire's life, posing as a potential nanny candidate. The Bartels are well off and busy, so hiring a nanny now with two children feels pretty reasonable. I do like when she comes into the scene that she just steps in front of a bus to stop it. I was like, man, how great would it be if she was just demolished and the movie was over right there? <laughs> the audience being aware of Peyton's true identity all along is fun. Because there is a way to do this where you set it up and the audience doesn't know mm -hmm. who this person is. Now, that would probably take more time and you'd have to have a lot of other misdirections going on. Yeah. So that people could maybe fall for it and not really know what was going on exactly. 
So it's probably easier in a way just to do it like this. Yeah, Put totally. all your cards out on the table. Yeah, they definitely could have just done all the doctor stuff, never show the picture, never show the right. And then it, most yeah. people would probably guess right. that there was a connection. Yeah. But there would be a way where the audience was in the dark, too, to do this. Or you could just have a completely different entry point to the Absolutely, story and yeah. not have molestation stuff at all. So the audience, of course, is going to be freaking out, and that's what they want. They want the audience to be losing their shit mm-hmm. while the people in the movie are oblivious to there being any p- potential problem. They don't even know that there's an issue yet while Peyton starts doing weird shit. <laughs> Claire, with no reason to suspect this woman in particular, unknowingly hires the widow of the man who sexually assaulted her and then killed himself rather than face the consequences. Which brings us to Siskel's beef with this movie. Gene Siskel was not a fan. Ebert liked it a lot more. I thought this would be interesting to focus on this moment, because this is the big moment. You're sending this one straight to the House of Buys. Okay. And deciding whether or not this is believable. Would this mother hire this woman out of the blue? I feel like I can go with it for the sake of the movie. Mm -hmm. If you're getting hung up on these things... I think it's time to relax. You either need to step away for a minute or you just don't have a good brain for movies. Because sometimes you just have to allow things to happen. I know. Is it unbelievable that this mother would do this rather than cross-referencing, checking everything, making sure this is a real person? Because it's not just... it's unbelievable. You you have to buy it first. I know. Buy it. It's It's fine. fine. It's fine for me too, but I get the criticism because this is not just someone stopping in your home for a couple hours after school every day. She lives in the house. This is full on, you have a resident in your house. Yeah. I guess the only pushback is, it's so crazy. What are the chances that somebody would do this? (laughs) I know. Who would this person be, realistically? Why would you think that someone would just show up and insert themselves into your whole life like this? It's so over the top. I'm not saying she would know who the woman is, but... Doesn't it seem like this guy who committed a crime against you who's been in the news for killing himself? I don't know. You never catch what his wife looks like? Yeah. It's a little more believable in a pre-internet age. There wasn't really 24-hour news. True. And I could see because she's pregnant and got her own stuff going on. that, And they do specifically say that she was not one of the people who sued. Correct, yeah. I think they included that so that you would think, well, she just wanted to be done with it. Yeah, yeah. To make it a little more believable that she would have never have crossed paths with this woman and know what she looks like. It is a stretch. There's no way around it. A, that she wouldn't know who this woman was, and B, that she would hire a stranger out of the blue who didn't really seem to have the right references. But we're buying it, so let's move on. Don't tell me to move on <laughs> on my show. No, I'm I'm telling the movie to move on. <laughs> we're not getting hung up. I was wondering if De Mornay was wearing contacts or not. They do seem a little unnatural. They're very icy blue. Yeah, yeah. There is in like a way a that freezing coldness. In their I think eyes. she has to be because in a way the eyes don't pop. They really pop. Yeah. Well, she is a movie star, so who knows? Yeah. Claire invites Peyton to dinner. This is like the bonding time to see if she's going to be a good fit. She really endears herself to the whole family, and then when Claire drops an earring on the ground. She sees an opportunity to really get herself in good with everyone by acting like she saved the baby from swallowing the earring, even though the earring was yeah. on the floor and the baby was in the crib. Way to just put yourself over. 
And so the Bartels are thoroughly charmed by Peyton and offer her the job, which involves her staying in their home. Again, these are the things that will freak out the audience because you're talking about an extreme level of intimacy, proximity, unlimited access, exposure to the family's most vulnerable moments, privy to secrets and personal matters and schedules and where you are and what are you doing and everything that's happening. You are entrenched in these people's lives now, and typically you would want a very high level of trust with people that you allow that kind of access, but Claire is sort of acting a little irresponsibly, going off of a gut feeling rather than instinct, which should be to... yeah vet all of the candidates properly. But Wouldn't she... make the best uh, hunch cop, Claire. No. Immediately, Peyton wages a campaign to undermine Claire in her own household, <laughs> seeking revenge against her for what transpired. She frequently breastfeeds Joey in secret, causing him to stop taking Claire's milk. Well, it's really effective the first time when she goes in there and she's alone in the room with Joey. Peyton, yeah. that is. Because... It's definitely playing with the audience that she's just going to kill this baby. And you're like, oh, man. But then it turns out she's just going to breastfeed. <laughs> Which may be more disturbing. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it's more <laughs> disturbing than killing a baby, but it certainly is going to get a big reaction. Absolutely. It's definitely a violation. So after the pillow smother tease, she begins breastfeeding the baby It seems obvious in retrospect, but yeah, the mother-child bond is sacred, and by fucking with it on screen, you just might have something major. It's surprising that movies didn't really touch this taboo sooner. Totally. Maybe there's other movies that get into this that predate The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I'm not super familiar with them, though. Something just cuts deep on it. Yeah, because once you see it, and you're picturing what the packed theaters on a Friday back in 1992 would have been like I know you know that people would be screaming and freaking out as soon as she starts doing it because it's something that you're not accustomed to seeing there are certain boundaries that usually most films or tv shows or whatever work within and you feel comfortable because no matter what happens they're not going to cross this line this is over now for me as a man who's not breastfeeding any child i have no children of my own sure it doesn't hit me the same way but i can appreciate that the mothers in the audience are gonna react a certain way to seeing this be like this bitch what the fuck yeah (laughs) the bartels have a couple of friends marty and marlene craven marlene is played by julianne moore yeah people about showing up I did think Siskel's review was funny because he pointed out Julianne Moore and was like, oh, I wish the friend had more to do. She seems like she's great and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, you at least hit that one. Yeah, really. Went on to be a big star. It is funny watching this movie. I don't want to fixate on people's appearances, but it's just the way things were back in the olden times where everyone's got cigarette teeth. Oh, definitely. I know. Nobody was like wearing veneers or whitening their teeth. <laughs> it's just a whole other world. Oh, yeah, just a lot Julian of yellow, Moore a lot of smoking black. smoking like a right. chimney in this movie. I know. That is one thing that jumps out is upper middle class people smoking cigarettes, just not really the world we live in anymore. Yeah. The 411 here is Marlene and Michael actually used to date, which is a weird detail to include in this movie. I get why, because it adds into the whole definitely mistrust and jealousy thing later. But, but it does seem weird that if they dated and it was that serious, that this foursome would be the main like friend group. Yeah, it's strange. 
especially with Claire referring to her as his first love. Right. It seems kind of serious. And yet, at various points throughout the movie, you feel like Marlene is supposed to be Claire's best friend. Yeah. Which makes it even stranger. Marty is at least acknowledging it. I know. He takes one look at Peyton and is like, what the fuck? She's living in your house? (laughs) What? (laughs) Later, Michael's co-workers will also at least be like, whoa, what is going on here? (laughs) I wrote that down. You should let me in on where you do your hiring. Yeah. And that guy's name was Gilbert. (laughs) Marlene at least gets it, though. Oh, yeah. Where she's telling Claire, like, what are you doing? This is the audience perspective here. She's like, nowadays a woman has to make at least 50000 a year, plus give blowjobs and homemade lasagna. <laughs> I wrote that down. I was <laughs> like, what a combo. <laughs> yeah, Marlene's a little bit more of the straight talking, cars oh, yeah. are out on the table, telling it like it is type vibe. Peyton continues to insert herself in the Bartell family business, slowly gaining Emma's favor and then trying to turn the girl against her mother. Emma confides that she's being bullied a little bit at school, so Peyton takes care of it. (laughs) Which is always a fun moment in these movies. Oh, yeah. When you have an adult confronting a child bully, they did the same thing in Tar. Definitely. (laughs) Hi, Emma. Tell me, which one is it? Where? You know the blue and gray striped shirt? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Watch it, Trippy. Sidewalk. Ow! Sidewalk. My arm! My arm! Ow! I got a message for you, Roth. Leave Emma alone. Look okay. at me. If you don't, I'm gonna rip your fucking head off. Don't forget it. Awesome. Peyton just grabs that kid by the arm and just throws him off the stairs <laughs> and is like, don't you fucking go near him. Yeah, I mean, I would be traumatized as a kid if this happened to me. Traumatized? <laughs> I you know, would unlock a new fetish. I couldn't deal with any level of authority, like, shaming me in any way. So actually just getting beat up by an adult would have been rough. <laughs> beat up? By a female adult. Peyton also secretly destroys Michael's big-time proposal for his job, making it look like Claire has irresponsibly lost it. (laughs) I do love that she goes into that bathroom at the greenhouse, Peyton, and just has a complete fucking meltdown with the plunger. (laughs) Just out of the blue. Yeah, you get it, though. You've had some of those days. Yeah, well, I'm having one right now. (laughs) Later, Peyton first pitches the idea of a surprise party for Claire, which Michael seems to like. Yeah, everybody's feeling a little down around the house. Yeah. It takes a while for them to understand (laughs) that things started going badly as soon as Peyton was introduced. (laughs) They seem oblivious to this for the longest time. I know. The coincidence of her showing up and then all of a sudden everything is going wrong all the time. Right. Stains on dresses. Things are missing. I know. Job proposal ruined. Emma acting weird, baby not eating. (laughs) Yeah. What's changed? What was the variable that's been introduced to the environment? It's Solomon, purely by accident, who first witnesses Peyton doing something wrong. 
while painting the trim on the house, he sees Peyton breastfeeding Joey through the bedroom window. Unfortunately for Solomon, Peyton is aware that she's been caught, which leads to yeah, she's got a their flip epic the table confrontation. Yeah. Oh gosh, <laughs> this would be like a confrontation I get involved in. I feel like you have. Yeah, really. On a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, it's like my old wife. <laughs> it's you and Lindsay. <laughs> Inside. I've got to talk to Solomon for a minute. Okay. Okay. Are you a retard? No. Did you like looking at me? Did you like looking at me? My version of the story will be better than yours. I will let you hurt them. They're my friends. I will let you hurt them. I did think it was a little cheese ball that Solomon immediately is saying, I won't let you hurt them. I know. This whole thing where he goes into protective mode. Maybe it's, it's a, a delicate too far. It's a delicate topic, but yeah. they, they sometimes like project these traits onto people that I don't necessarily know that yeah. it would happen like this. And then it, they become default heroic. I know. They want to put like the gentle giant type thing in there. Yeah, and I, I just don't know that he would really, even if he does love the family and yeah. he is loyal to them, I don't know that he would be perceptive enough to understand what's happening. And They make it seem like he's the only one that grasps right. that she's dangerous. 
Well, look, if I was getting this aggressive push from Peyton, there would be no pushback from me. I would be like, yeah, do whatever you want to the family. You'll never see me again. (laughs) (laughs) To prevent Solomon from exposing her, Peyton first plants a seed with Claire, briefly implying that she believes Solomon may be molesting Emma. Peyton then plants a pair of Emma's underwear in Solomon's toolbox cart and concocts a reason for Claire to look through it. Which, by the way, does send the movie down quite a dark twist again with this stuff. And thus find the underwear. Much to Emma's disappointment, Solomon is fired. This causes Emma and Claire to grow distant. So for Peyton, it basically works as two birds, one stone. She got rid of someone who saw her doing something that she shouldn't have been doing, and then it also factors into her overall plan, which is to drive a wedge between Emma and Claire. But when you factor in what already happened to Claire, this is a pretty big yikes. It's hard to even really fully appreciate the trauma of something like this whenever you're recovering from the first assault, and then you're implying that something equally horrific has happened to your small, tiny child. The world that these people are temporarily living in when they believe both of these things have happened, it's got to be horrific. How do you trust anyone? It's fucked up for everyone. Thankfully not for Emma, who doesn't really understand what's happening and yeah. didn't actually happen to her. I know. But for the her parents, especially Oof. Claire, who's had to go through this herself, and I know. to think this has happened again and then... They obviously they feel a level of guilt. Well, right, yeah. They've allowed this man to be around and do all these things, and they feel foolish and tricked, even though they really weren't. And Solomon is a good guy, right? Yeah, the signs are pointing to there being a huge problem. It does seem like this would completely shatter the household. Yeah, and you have to imagine. I know that I put it somewhere in here, but not to make it all about the man, but. Even Michael, you got to be thinking like how ineffectual. I, I yeah, I put the word emasculation I, as a f- husband, a father, a protector, a man to have this happen to your wife and then child too. That's a huge burden. Obviously, it's way worse for Claire who it actually happens to, and then what she's thinking that she allowed it to happen to her daughter too. So yeah, there's that added element where Peyton is fully aware of what her own husband did and then knows that that's got to be a weak spot and targets that too and makes that look like it's happening with emma oof and the immediate aftermath is heartbreaking you have claire crying on the couch alone while peyton holds joey in the kitchen and emma comes up to her oh yeah and hugs her rough scene rough night for claire and then secretly peyton is blaming claire (laughs) She's like just spending so all this time with Emma, yeah. just being like, yeah, I guess your mommy didn't want Solomon around because she's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm your mom now. Right. <laughs> Unknown to the family except for Emma, Solomon keeps a watchful eye over them as he now understands Peyton is bad news. Having learned of Michael and Marlene's past from Emma, Peyton suggests to Michael that he arrange a surprise birthday for Claire knowing that this will lead to Marlene and Michael meeting in secret. Marlene seems to be the only one who kind of gets what's happening, yet she's not actually in a position to throw any accusations out yet. Well, I like that whole scene before they go to dinner, when she's just over at the house talking to Claire out front, and she kind of leaves in a hurry because (laughs) talking about 
having Peyton's souffle or whatever. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, I got to go. But right, the yeah. real reason is because she's meeting up with the husband. But it's a funny sequence because first she's like criticizing the wind chimes gift, which 100% agree. Yeah. What which is, is that horrible sound? Yeah. <laughs> what is that annoying noise? <laughs> but then she's like, oh, yeah, Peyton's making this souffle if you want to stay. And she's like, no, I got to go. And she gets like caught in the lie because she talked yeah. about this house that she was going to go show. And Claire's like, I thought you already sold that. Yeah, well, there's a couple of scenes where Marlene seems to know that Peyton is bad news, that something's oh, yeah. happening. But she doesn't have any proof and she doesn't have any specifics, so she can't actually say anything yet. She's powerless to actually right. get involved, but she seems to know something's up. Something's off here. And then Peyton conveniently out in her nightgown making setting noise. Setting a scenario where she's gonna encounter Michael and it's not really a full on attempted seduction yet, yeah. but it's a little teaser. They and definitely that- do the like eye gaze thing. The prolonged eye gaze. There's like three <laughs> sequences of them doing that. Well, this all plays into what I was talking about, the emasculation that Michael yeah. probably feels as a man and what's happened to his family over the last six months. So then you have this gorgeous woman flaunting it around mm-hmm. intentionally trying to get your attention. And yes, of course, he's a married man and he ends up proving to be very loyal and faithful to Claire. But, you know, it's going to feel good, the ego. I like, think so. This woman wants me. Yeah. Too. And that helps when you're feeling low about yourself, which he undoubtedly would be because of what's happened. Even though it's not his fault and it's not Claire's fault, sure. it's certainly not Emma's fault either. It just feels but, that way. Yeah, you feel that way and so you're down and then, yeah. Peyton in the nightgown being like, <laughs> can I fix you something? I know. It's I, a lot I'd be like, to process. Yeah. Well, what did you have in mind? <laughs> what dishes can you make? I'm interested. What's on the menu? After finding Marlene's lighter in Michael's jacket, Claire accuses him of having an affair with Marlene, only to discover the surprise party guests waiting in the next room. Oh. Yeah, this is a rough, rough moment. How do you come back to a normal friendship after this? I've always had trouble with these kinds of moments in movies and shows and stuff. You're, like, hiding your face. I think it's because it it seems so possible that I could make a scene being dead wrong. Just making a huge scene and just being absolutely wrong. Well, yeah, I would say that's happened within this episode, yeah. let alone any other yeah, moment of right. my life. I just can't take it when characters are so embarrassed or humiliated by something and you can see it coming I before know. it happens. That build up. It's watching a train wreck. Of dread. This is what cringe really is. I this know. is what it started as. I know it gets overused now, but everything's cringe. But this is actual cringe where you're bracing for something because you can see those guests and then like their yeah. reactions to where she's like, you're fucking Marlene. Like she's oh. having a meltdown in the kitchen and they're all standing like 10 feet away. You can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> this Marlene be... is like the centerpiece of the party. She's yeah, she's like, just but... standing there humiliated. Yeah. This would be the social event of the season. I know. Like, you cannot. Well, if you and me were this. here, we would just be like talking about this nonstop, driving around afterwards for hours. I would have hours. thrown myself out of one of their windows already. <laughs> I, I was like, I can't take it and just jumped out a window. Yeah. I would have walked out to the greenhouse and like tried to figure out how to activate that lever so just glass just destroys me. 
I'm not exactly sure what Peyton was hoping was going to come of the whole surprise party thing. I know that she wanted to introduce some uncertainty into their marriage and make Claire suspicious of Michael. But in the end, it sort of backfires because in the aftermath of the incident at the surprise party, that's when Claire begins to suspect Peyton's hand in all of these incidents. Finally, what oh, is the thing yeah. that's changed? She can't really tie Peyton to anything specifically, Have but ever since using she showed up, new, everything's gone uh, wrong. Shampoo, something's different. She suggests to Michael that they should take a family vacation without their new live-in nanny. However, unbeknownst to Claire and Michael, Peyton is listening in on their conversation over the baby monitor. In response, Peyton booby traps Claire's greenhouse in the yard, <laughs> obviously intending to make her big final move and eliminate her rival. Naturally, in her mind, she would inherit Michael, Emma, and baby Joey. Yeah, it's a fair trade. It's not too dissimilar from the central idea of single white female or many other of these from hell subgenre replace. movies, which is basically, I'm going to replace yeah. this person. Poison Ivy was kind of the same thing. They're all sort of like that. Right. I'm going to take your life and make it mine. Yeah. However, as that's happening... Marlene, who is a real estate agent, stumbles onto Peyton's true identity when looking at the listing for the old Mott house. Those fucking wind chimes were the giveaway. And she shows up, the same wallpaper. Well, actually, I think that's what Claire sees, is that same stupid wallpaper when Claire retraces I know. these steps. But yeah, she pieces that's it together, brutal. figures out who Peyton is. It's so funny that like the wind chimes is the thing that... That's the light bulb moment. That's the smoking gun. Well, she had to go to the public library and hit up that microfiche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scrolling through old microfiche. Right. Like, oh, yeah, this fucking cunt. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> I did think that it was sort of a, a mistake of Marlene's to act the way that she does once she realizes who Peyton is. She freaks out. I know. She starts calling the house, and she's not so subtle on the phone. Completely giving it away. Claire's not home, so she's talking to Peyton. Yeah, your first thought should be, Holy shit, this person is completely insane, which makes them very dangerous. Absolutely. I cannot reveal that I know this right away because not only am I endangering myself, there's two small children Absolutely. involved. I cannot disrupt anything. I have to play it cool. But she really doesn't. I know. <laughs> which I get. If you're Julia and Moore, you're probably thinking, I'm going to Well, she's been waiting for a moment. Yeah. Ass I know. And like go right at she's her. She's been trying to build this up and now she's validated. Let's go. It's on. Well, I think in, after what happened with the surprise party thing, everyone's just grasping. They're yeah. searching for answers <laughs> as to what happened. We need to be able to explain this. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a relief to find out that this is Mrs. Mott because then you're like, oh, okay, something weird is going on. Exactly. Otherwise, now we like, can backtrack. That? Yeah. <laughs> that was a complete meltdown. For yeah. Life. That surprise party was just a moment in time where things are never going to be the same again. Craven, you need to spell it? Oh, Chris, my human, I'll tell you I called. Sure you will. Wait, is it the parade? Let's go! <laughs> 
made Marlene call. She said it's important. rushes over to the Bartell house, reveals what she knows to Peyton, and then is tricked into going into the greenhouse where she is killed by the falling glass ceiling. I was thinking she could have survived this, but no. Yeah, it does seem unlikely that she would actually die from this unless a shard of glass happened to hit her in a key area where she would then lose a lot of blood. It's very... Dario Argento-esque. Right. It's reminiscent of the beginning of Suspiria or something. A lunatic way to kill somebody. Totally. And the movie did get a little bit of notoriety from this scene. It is kind of over the top Yeah, for this kind of movie. Now... That there'd be this brutal of a death? Yeah. I will say the reputation's a little overstated because you really only see her after the fact one time and mm-hmm. yes she does have blood on her but it's not like crazy no. looking and you don't actually see her die you just see the glass falling and then it cuts away so it's not really that violent agreed i guess if you were to actually die from this it would be insanely violent that's so true just the fact yeah that it's there, the idea yeah Knowing that Claire suffers from asthma, Peyton empties all of her inhalers when Claire finds Marlene's bloodied body she has a severe asthma attack causing her to collapse and very much appear to be dead, which I was thinking was actually more traumatic than the greenhouse thing. I know. She seems very dead. Her eyes are open, and then she's, like, breathing so slow, and then it seems like she just stops. Doesn't it sort of feel like characters with asthma and asthma attacks was a kind of a trope during a certain era that just doesn't really exist anymore? You don't really see it in movies and shows the way you used to? (laughs) I guess. I feel like in the 90s it had a big run. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. What else are you thinking of? It? Let me get back to you. <laughs> Does the kid in My Girl have asthma? Or is it just a bee allergy? I think it's just a bee allergy. Okay. That's like the one movie that we're never going to do on the show. And I refuse <laughs> to. It, no one can even request it. Mikey from The Goonies. Okay. Yeah. What? He never. He didn't First of all, it. that yeah. would be the 80s. But. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> Peyton is out walking the baby when the ambulances start approaching. I love the shot of her annoyed face. Oh, 
That's one of the best moments of the entire movie. Where she's like, who the Just fuck called these people? Well, she knew her plan failed. She thought she was going to kill two birds with she one stone. She thought this was again. the moment. Yeah. You already cashed that ship in, honey. You're not getting the two birds <laughs> with one stone again. <laughs> she's like, well, I'll kill this fucking cunt who figured out who I am. And then I'll get the other one, too, because she will freak out and won't be able to breathe. No. I don't know. Does she call for help before she passes out? I can't remember. I guess she must have. Yeah, she does. Yeah, okay. Claire is hospitalized. Michael is left distraught over Marlene's death and his wife's condition. Back at the house, coming inside after being out in the middle of a rainstorm, Peyton attempts to seduce Michael, but he rejects her. If you're ever going to be tempted in a marriage, man, this is the situation. Wife away in the hospital. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I would think maybe you would want to be more loyal to your wife. Maybe you'd stay the the night in the hospital with her. What I really mean, though, is just the fact that she's not in the mix, and <laughs> this woman is putting a full court press on. I hope Li- Lindsay's paying special close attention Listen, to this part. We just know the scenario of how this is going to happen for Matt. I think Lindsay and I are aligned that we're never going to have a nanny that looks like Rebecca de Mornay live in our house. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. And if it did, she's not going to be interested in me. <laughs> I just thought that Michael was a strong man, a loyal husband. Yeah, he's a good guy. He does the right thing. Yeah. That's all the takeaway from it. Solomon hanging around more, even waiting outside the hospital on his bike. (laughs) He's going that extra level where that's what I mean. It's so much that he's doing. Like, it's a constant surveillance to make sure that Peyton isn't doing anything wrong. And I know. At a certain point, I just don't think that he would be able to do this. I agree. What are the better day people doing? They're just letting him go out. This on his seems bike like a full time gig now for him. He's doing full time surveillance. <laughs> the one piece of this movie, though, that feels untrue to me <laughs> is right here in the post failed seduction era. Because to me, this feels like Peyton, even if she isn't Mrs. Mott, let's just pretend she's Peyton. Yeah. Who joined this family with the best intentions. But then fell in love with the husband and is now trying to seduce and steal the husband. Mm-hmm. Once you put all those chips on the table and you go for it and then it doesn't happen, I feel like that's it. I felt like Peyton walked away from that not feeling like it was over. She didn't because she references it later thinking yeah. that that somehow went well. I know. Because she's completely insane. But yeah, it's very well, even from his perspective. If, if she took it as a shoot down, this is going in a completely different direction now. He's dead. Well, think just about it from his sleep. perspective. Yeah. He isn't going to make her leave right. after this? He's just going to act like that didn't happen? Because that's kind of what he does. Well, he still likes the confidence boost, you know? <laughs> I guess. Look, Claire could run out on him. Because when Claire comes back, she sees that they're playing Go Fish. Michael, Emma, Peyton, as yeah, if that didn't one happen. One big happy family. <laughs> as if she didn't humiliate herself in the kitchen. Her nightmare has come true. With her white nightgown. Yep. Her wet white nightgown. <laughs> it was something. By remembering that Marlene had urgently been trying to get a hold of her before she died, and then retracing some of her steps, Claire finally uncovers the truth regarding Peyton's identity. She rushes home and confronts her while at the same time revealing the truth to Michael. And then she punches Peyton in the face, and it's quite a punch. It sends Peyton over the table. Oh, yeah, it's a haymaker. Mike Tyson, <laughs> knockout. She's got color the hard way. There's yeah. blood. Yeah, 
It's a wild punch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a cartoon. You're or like, I didn't know you had it in you, Claire. <laughs> That'd be funny if Michael was like, what the fuck are you doing to punches, Claire? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Claire. We were worried about you. Claire, oh my God. She's Dr. Moss's widow, Michael. She's what? Get out of our house. She's turning on me, Michael, just like you said she would. She doesn't realize how I've come through for this family. You have to tell him, Michael. Tell him about us. There's nothing to tell. You should leave, Peyton. Michael, what are you saying? You told me there was only one woman for you. I meant Claire. My wife. Okay. Fine. I'll just get my baby and we'll be on our way. The Bartels kick Peyton out of their house, and then Michael tells Claire to get Emma and Joey so they can head to a hotel for safety. Oh, Michael. Later, Peyton breaks back into the house and hits Michael with a shovel, knocking him off of a staircase and breaking his legs. Not a great showing as the husband here. Well, well you got to get him saying? out of the way. Yeah. He's, he's not important to the story. Right. We know that. He I know. He can't be factoring into the end. But for a guy who's been feeling emasculated... Not another great moment here. He seems to just let that stuff roll right off his yeah. shoulders. He doesn't care. Peyton then goes after Claire, who was calling 911. <laughs> Meanwhile, 911's like, enough. I know. <laughs> Jesus, every five seconds with you people. <laughs> However, Emma sees Peyton assaulting her mommy, and thus yeah. everything changes. Peyton no longer finds Emma on her side. Emma tricks Peyton by locking her in the nursery and declaring that Peyton will never be her mother. Hmm. Peyton escapes the nursery by literally bashing a hole through the door with a fire poker and then tracks Emma to the attic where she finds Solomon aiding the kids in their escape. How did he get up there? He's always been there. That's right. As she goes to confront Solomon, Claire joins the party and the two of them battle. Claire with a knife and Peyton with the fire poker. Oh uh, yeah, a weapons match. Peyton gets the upper hand and seems to have the chance to kill Claire, but she stops when Claire looks to be having another asthma attack, prompting Peyton to mock her. Oh, Well, it's always the downfall for yep. these villains. They always think they have the upper hand, and then they give it away. Ric Flair have when, to, having to stop the showboat. When your husband makes love to you, it's my face he sees, she says. When your baby's hungry, it's my breast that feeds him. Mm-hmm. You know that this is setting up for... Rage building in the audience. An audience cheer. cheer. Yeah. You know it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) As Peyton attempts to take Joey from Solomon, Claire gets up, having faked the asthma attack, and the two of them fight again, this time with Claire getting the jump. When Peyton goes to swing the shovel, Solomon grabs it and stops her, allowing for Claire to have the opportunity to push Peyton out of the attic window. She is impaled on the picket fence. The very same fence that Solomon put up. Yeah, he's going to have killed. to build a new one now. It's virgin suicides. Can we um, quickly go back to the Marlene death? No uh, suspicions of foul play here? I, I mean, just a dead woman in a greenhouse? Well, you would no think that after around. they find another dead woman at this house. <laughs> yeah, I know. Claire would be under investigation here. Well, somebody would. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I was wondering about Marlene's husband. You just never see him again. You would think he would have a million questions <laughs> for his fucking friends. I know. Hey, guys, what happened to my wife? True crime podcast down the road. <laughs> the Greenhouse. It's just, yeah. That's the name of the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Peyton's dead. Touched at how Solomon risked his life to protect her family and realizing she made a huge mistake about him, Claire welcomes him back into the fold. They all go to help Michael as the police and paramedics arrive. It's essentially the same ending as Fear. Yeah. More or less. They just push somebody out the window. The movie's also pretty similar to Fear. <laughs> all the, all these <laughs> yeah. movies are kind of the same. They all rule. Yeah. They're all incredible. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is a lot of fun. It was a huge hit, but it's probably a little underseen these days. Yeah, a forgotten hit, it feels like. It was very much of a time. Right. I don't know that this particular genre would bring in that amount of money anytime other than 1992. Uh, I wish it did. I mean. Yeah. But even still, I think it was a much bigger hit than Single White Female mm-hmm. or Fear or a lot of these other movies that are pretty similar to it, but... I don't know. This one captured the imagination. I do think that having a different woman breastfeeding the baby and sort of shock trying to push the mother out like that really captured the audience's imagination. And that's what sparked this to become bigger than what it seems like it would be. And yeah, 30 so or so years have passed. So we were at, we have 30 years worth of material that has imitated this. So this doesn't feel particularly innovative or groundbreaking or anything right interesting but i think at the time it jumped out to people and it it presented the thriller in a much more domestic real everyday sense and a lot of audiences probably related to that even if they weren't quite as rich as the bartels or whatever but it still seemed very real and relatable like this could happen to anyone even though it is such a crazy story that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it really wouldn't happen to anyone, but you can kind of convince yourself it could. Yeah, yeah. Which is the genius, I guess, of this type of film. I love Rebecca DeVornay. I don't know why know. she didn't become like a bigger star. It's a shame. But she would have already been in her 30s at this point, so you know how it is. Yeah, I know. Women. Her she career was like, like wrapping up, I yeah, guess, I know. for a lot of people. But some of these women have like a later run, and it seemed like that could have been something for her that never really came to be. Yeah, I mean, she's still around. Yeah. Yeah. She was doing the TV version of The Shining within a couple years of this. Yeah, we should do that. (laughs) I always mean to watch it. I I have the DVDs, but I have yet to actually put it on. I let you borrow And God Created Woman with Rebecca DeMornay, the remake. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) I know. She's the best. (laughs) She was in a weird 90s movie called Guilty as Sin with Don Johnson. I remember that existing. I, I don't think I ever saw it. It was pretty fun. She was in title. a strange movie with Antonio Banderas where she like, bites his butt cheek. I remember that. That sounds good. Sounds promising. I think it was called Never Talk to Strangers, but that maybe that, that might not be it. I don't know. <laughs> Never Talk to Strangers just seems like the name of a movie that came out like every year between 86 and 96. And she was in all of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a De Mornay special. Yeah. It's the perfect movie to kick off One Trashy Summer because it's not actually trashy in the traditional sense. There's like... It's a cool movie. A little bit of nudity in it. Not much. Not really. Yeah. It's not super sexual. It's more of just the salacious material. It's a fun thriller. I think it's a little trashy. 
A I little. I think so. I think. But in a good way, in that pulpy, fun, yeah, beach read, paperback novel kind of way where it's very heightened and over the top, but still sort of grounded in a real world in a way. And totally. just have fun with it. So let's move on to the segments. I think that another theme that will probably develop over the course of One Trashy Summer is shorter episodes. That's what I would guess. Yeah, I think that's fine. I'm not going to go super crazy with They're these. generally shorter movies, which is nice. Yeah, that is a plus. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. So let's start with recommendations. This has become a recurring one for me. This is the third time I'm going to do it, but season three just dropped. It's one of the best shows on TV, and you can find it on Netflix. I think you should leave season three. I was stunned when you told me that you hadn't already watched all of it. Well, I was pacing it out a little bit. Yeah, that's impressive It just debuted yesterday. Yeah, I know, but you know how you are, though. (laughs) I know, and there's only six episodes, and they're 15 minutes long. But it's the funniest show out there. It's a sketch show. It's completely ridiculous and insane. I always get nervous that it's not going to be as funny as it was, and then I watch it, and I end up laughing the whole time, basically. Because even if you're like, this is stupid, you're still kind of laughing because it's so stupid. (laughs) I don't know. It's too early for me to say how it compares to the first two seasons. I haven't watched the whole season yet, and I generally tend to rewatch the episodes a few times. Tim Robinson was on SNL. It clearly didn't work. He didn't really fit into that world at all, and so all of his crazy sketches are this show now and there's really nothing like it i don't no, really I know. know what you could compare it to yeah it's one of a kind for sure <laughs> it's very memeable too absolutely so check out i think you should leave season three on netflix matt yeah no recommendations yeah, a lot of travel for me lately we're gonna skip over mailbag this week but please continue to email the show greatestpod at gmail.com because we're going to pick it up next time, which we're actually going to be recording as soon as we wrap this up. So we're not really doing away with it, just sort of spacing it out. So yeah, little break. Send it in, please. Greatestpod at gmail.com. She's never seen a single Paul Walker movie? That's a huge oh-no-no. She also doesn't care about Blu-ray. She's a monster. And finally, Physical Media Spotlight. I'm going to talk about something i just picked up this week it has been out for a while but i finally got around to getting it it is the box set from severin this looks cool it's called all the haunts be ours a compendium of folk horror great title so if you're a fan of the wicker man or midsummer this would probably be something you could be interested in there's 12 Blu-rays, 3 CDs, 20 feature films. Wow, multimedia. And 15-plus hours of bonus features included. These movies are from the U.S., Canada, England, Czech Republic, Russia, all over the world, any of the places where people have dabbled in folk horror, which, again, I guess you would think of as movies similar to Wicker Man or Midsummer, but... You know, they could be old witch stories, too. Anything with, like, the woods and all that kind of shit. You know what I mean. Totally. Robert Eggers style. Yeah. I think the witch would be a a folk horror as well. So, yeah, I'm excited to dive into this. I've wanted to pick it up for a while. I'm sure most of these movies no one's ever heard of, although I have actually seen one of them. 
Well, it looks super cool. I'll say that. Yeah. So that'll that'll do it for physical media spotlight. You can pick that up still as long as it's in print. Severin's box sets tend to stay in print for a little while. And then, of course, like anything, once they're gone, it will get very expensive. Not that it's cheap now, so I can't really imagine people running out to buy it. But if you wanted a little bit of clarification as to the point of physical media spotlight, it isn't necessarily to buy the things we talk about, unless you're interested, of course, that would be great. It's really just to just generate discussion about physical media, which is something that we support and hope that everyone else supports as well. I know that not everyone's going to want to have a huge albatross of a collection like mine. It's tough to manage. But what I would recommend is picking yourself up an affordable 4K player. I would recommend region free, but if that's not going to happen, at least a 4K player. You can find them pretty cheap now. And pick out a certain number, 15, 20, 25 movies. I would probably focus on the movies you consider to be your favorites that you're not 100% sure would always be available streaming. So what I mean by that is, if your favorite movies are Star Wars and Jaws, you're probably all right not to buy those because I think they'll probably be streaming forever. Yeah. But if you have favorite movies like some of our listeners have recommended to us, Eddie and the Cruisers, Three O'Clock High, some of these more under the radar, I think Heavy, which you'd have to get on DVD, which is out of print, or some... Sling Blade. Oh, yeah. I would buy 15 to 20, 25 of those movies that you really like that you would just want to make sure you have, just in case. Is that the most practical thing for everyone now that we've turned away from physical media? Probably not, but that's what I would recommend because you never know. I would hate to be in a situation where I didn't have access to some kind of a player that would play movies. I still think the physical media experience is slightly better, too. I think so. I think looks-wise, yeah, the picture quality is definitely better. But it's nice just to have things. That way, other than electricity, you're not really relying on anybody or anything. Yeah. I think relying on the streamers to always have this stuff is kind of a risky proposition because obviously they don't they don't value it the same way that the viewers or the audience values it. It's a commodity to these people. Mm-hmm. But to us, we care about it. I'd like to be in a situation where I could always watch Sling Blade no matter what. I don't have to worry about it. Anyway, that's the whole point of the physical media spotlight is to try to push that, push the idea that it's worth owning these things because I certainly feel like it is. I own The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, for example. Definitely. So yes, next week we'll pick it back up with the emails, greatestpod at gmail.com. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at greatestpod. Twitter and email are great places to reach out if you'd like a free sticker or if you have a listener request, which we can negotiate and you can pay for. Anything else, email, questions, comments, concerns, make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you follow us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to keep it rolling. Another jam-packed month. It's one trashy summer, baby. Hang on. Turn it up. (laughs) Turn it up. Turn it on. (laughs) Turn it up to get turned on. (laughs) One trashy summer. (laughs) Meanwhile, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is like one of the least trashy movies we've ever done. (laughs) The Bad News Bears would have made more sense. Probably true, yeah. I think it says something about the way we process these movies that my first thought is, oh, yeah, this sort of counts as a trashy movie. 
I know, because it just kind of does have that sleazy vibe. Yeah. Right. That's enough. It's a vibe. Yeah. You get it. If you know, you know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, thanks for listening. We will be back next week with, should I give a hint? Sure, why not? One of our favorite actresses is featured in this film. Wow. Somebody that I would say is a huge influence and inspiration for the podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) It's somebody that I've been wanting to return to their material for a long time, and her films are often on perspective lists, and we finally got around to it. Yep, it's a good one. And we're excited. And it's from the 1970s, so I'm sure the downloads will be not great. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, we thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you.
Bust out your pussy this summer at Kohl's. Take 50% off on all spring items. And shake that ass for some Kohl's cash. This summer at Kohl's.